Oh, yeah, they're going to talk to you and talk to you and talk to you about individual freedom. But they see a free individual, it's going to scare them. Maybe if you don't want to talk, you could just listen. happened there all right gang <laughs> great start brilliant let's just keep it i am mal foster i am i'm struggling to speak obviously hopefully you are not struggling to listen as you do in fact listen to the latest episode of your third favorites above average but infinitely curious podcast dined out it is season 10 season no it's not <laughs> wow I'm getting way ahead of myself. Not only that, but I am getting incredibly optimistic to even think I'm going to make it to season 10. No, it is in fact season 4, episode 11. Don't know where the 10 came in. Presumably because that was last week's episode, which, subsequently, if you haven't checked out, you really need to. Last week, in episode 10 of season 4, I had the absolute pleasure of chatting to Dr. Kevin Payne an esteemed sociologist, psychologist, and all-round amazing human being with a truly, and I mean this, genuinely inspirational story. The Cliff Notes version of it, which doesn't do it justice at all, but I'm going to give you the elevator pitch regardless, the Cliff Notes version of Kevin's story is that he is an esteemed psychologist and sociologist. He has, for many years, suffered from various different symptoms of MS. He's also been through an amazingly bleak amount of tragedy and trauma in his life. And after finding himself emotionally depleted and at a baseline of nothingness, managed to build himself back up and discovered or rediscovered his love of skydiving, in which he has now logged over 200 skydives despite his physical ailments it's amazing like his story is fantastic is a real real look at both the downside and upside of human life in one person's story and if you haven't heard it then yeah you need to put it on your to-do list at the very least for this episode, this very episode that you're listening to, this batch of audio gold flowing through your earboxes and going straight to the cerebral core of your being, this episode is the one before the 4th of July, or Independence Day, as it is affectionately known by some. Um, yeah, don't worry, this is not going to be some kind of patriotic grandstanding episode, I'm not about to get out the American equivalent of bunting, which I guess would be just a flag... Yeah, I, I don't need to do that, because honestly, you could walk 10 feet in any direction here and find one, so I don't need to be contributing that. What I am going to be contributing, though, for this 4th of July is a podcast, uh, which nobody asked for, but I'm putting out there anyway, a podcast which I think encompasses a few key touchstones of the American zeitgeist and identity, and its spirituality, incarceration, drugs, and the concept of free thinking. Now, for those of you who have been listening to the podcast for a while, at least since last season, you might know that I wanted to cover Timothy Leary for some time on the show. 
The initial idea was to create a sort of biographical episode that looked at his life and his work, but stepping back and looking at the bigger picture, I've come to realise that the best approach here would be to look at something specific. So, in this episode, we're going to be taking a look at the two key experiments from the Harvard Psilocybin Project, which ran between 1960 to 1962 and was conducted by Timothy Leary himself and Richard Alpert, or, as he's better known, Ram Dass. Yep, that Ram Dass. You know, spiritual... spiritual? (laughs) Spiritual teach... I really cannot speak in this episode... Oh, it's going to be a long one. Spiritual teacher, yogi, guru, and all-round expansive thinker, Ramdas. But before we dive into the experiments, I want to do a very quick run-through of who Timothy Leary was, for those that might be coming into this episode as a blank slate. Richard Nixon once described him as the most dangerous man in America, whilst Allen Ginsberg, beat poet and just all-round legend, called him a hero of American consciousness. So, with endorsements like that the man was clearly doing something right. Right? Leary gained notoriety in the 60s as a clinical psychologist that was not only a strong advocate for psychedelic drugs, but as a researcher who wanted to test their therapeutic effects. Through his work, he became a counterculture icon and somewhat of a philosopher, popularising phrases and ideas such as turn on, tune in, drop out, along with think for yourself and question authority. So, it's pretty clear why conservative America was terrified of him. Old Timothy also developed an interest in transhumanism, which is a completely different path we could take at some point down the line, but if you're unfamiliar with what the hell transhumanism is, I'd like to take this moment to shamelessly point you toward Dined Out, Season 1, Episode 19, in which I talked to James, that's all he went by, James, the author of the Transhumanist Manifesto, to give us essentially what became a beginner's guide to transhumanism. If you have no idea what it is, definitely go check it out. If you do, go check it out regardless, because James does actually have some really interesting thoughts. This is something he clearly loves and knows a lot about. So yeah, season one, episode 19. Put that on your to-do list as well. Leary would also go on to develop a hypothesis known as the eight-circuit model of consciousness, which essentially is a system of neurological evolution. Now, to be honest and fair and transparent, I've only just scratched the surface of this myself. That's putting it mildly, but already to me it seems genuinely fascinating. And it's created a sort of rabbit hole of research which has led me to a book by the name of Prometheus Rising, which incorporates Leary's eight-circuit model, along with things like general semantics and, and philema, which was the, uh, the philosophy put forward by Alistair Crowley. And uh, all of this is done in an attempt to look at social mind control and mental imprinting, whilst at the same time providing mental exercises for the reader. So, you know, if you know me, you know, personally, or you just know me via the podcast, it probably won't surprise you to know that I've got a copy of that waiting for me to read at some point. And perhaps, maybe we'll dive into it in a future episode. Who knows? But for now... Let's get back to Timothy Leary, and in particular, the two experiments we're going to be focusing on in this episode. So, the first experiment we're going to be looking at is the Concord Prison Experiment, which was conducted between February 1961 to January 1963 in Concord State Prison, which is a maximum security prison for young offenders, 
in Concord, Massachusetts. Massachusetts? Massachusetts? Is that how you say Oh, I think that's how you say it. Massachusetts? It's spelled completely different to how that's pronounced, but yeah, I think you understand what I mean. On a completely unrelated side note, this episode is probably going to be the richest episode that you're going to hear from this show in terms of insight and idiocy at the same time, proving that the two things can very much exist in the same sphere. The idiocy coming from me, obviously. Anywho, the experiment was conducted by a team of Harvard University researchers who were directed by then Harvard professor Timothy Leary, who oversaw the experiment alongside Michael Hollingshead, Alan Cohen, Alfred Alshuda, George Litwin, Ralph Metzer, Gunther Weil, Ralph Schwitzgable, pretty sure I got that one, and Madison Presnell, who was acting as the medical and psychiatric advisor. The experiment was designed to see if the administration of and the experience produced by psilocybin, which, if you don't know, is the psychoactive drug found in what is commonly known as magic mushrooms, if that, combined with psychotherapy, could reduce an inmate's rate of reoffending once released. The researchers gathered detailed info on a total of 32 prisoners, including psychological profiles, personal backgrounds and personality tests, and then administered a pharmaceutical-grade psilocybin, which, by the way, as another side note, if you're wondering, yes, I have actually researched into how you pronounce psilocybin, and I have practised, because it's a word that keeps coming up in this. And I thought, if there's one word I have to get right for this episode, it's psilocybin. Anyway, researchers gathered detail on the prisoners, psychological profiles, personal backgrounds, personality tests, and then administered a pharmaceutical-grade psilocybin. Are you proud of me? I hope you are. To the 32 subjects selected. And what's interesting is, at the time, there was a point of contention and controversy for this, was the fact that the researchers, and Leary himself, no doubt also took psilocybin themselves along with the prisoners, and this was done in an effort to sort of create a sense of equality, a shared experience, and to dispel any sense of fear or mistrust that might have existed between the subjects and researchers. As I said, there was a sense of controversy about this because obviously those conducting the experiment shouldn't be taking the drugs themselves, but at the same time, I totally get it, because, you know, in essence, what they've done there is they've equaled the playing field and created, in my opinion, what is a necessary neutral environment, which would have probably significantly lowered any potential psychological or emotional imbalances from the start. You know, you're dealing with inmates, you're conducting an experiment on them, they're going to probably feel like lab rats, but by kind of taking part in it yourself, you're kind of stripping away that sort of sense of, of power imbalance. And I think, honestly, that makes for, a, as I say, a much more sort of neutral ground to conduct an experiment like this. Before the experiment took place, records at Concord Prison suggested that 64% of the 32 subjects would return to prison within six months of parole. However, after six months, only 25% of those on parole had returned, six for technical parole violations and only two for new offences. So if you take away the parole violations and look solely at the act of reoffending, which the experiment was primarily focused on, two subjects out of 32 returned based on new offences. So to get statistical with this, that's a reoffending rate of 6.25%. 
Or, in other words, 93.75% of subjects didn't return on new offences. And even with the parole violations included, 75% of subjects didn't return full stop. That's three quarters of the subjects. Now, granted, 32 subjects is a tiny sample size when compared to the total population of people in the American prison system, which, if you were wondering, according to the sentencing project, is approximately 2 million. 2 million. Which is apparently a 500% increase over the last 40 years. A staggering statistic, which exists for numerous reasons, but that itself is also another topic for another podcast episode. Although, while we are on the statistic train, just to give you a quick look at the disproportionate bullshit and racial bias of mass incarceration, again, according to the sentencing project, black men are six times as likely to be incarcerated as white men, and Latinos are 2.5 times as likely. Again, through research conducted by the Sentencing Project, uh, they have put together a projection that suggests that the lifetime likelihood of imprisonment for US residents born in 2001 breaks down like this. One in 17 white males will be imprisoned. One in six Latino males will be imprisoned. One in three black males will be imprisoned. And then if you flip the table... One in 111 white females will be imprisoned, one in 45 Latino females will be imprisoned, and one in 18 black women will be imprisoned. I'm going to give you just a second to let that sink in. Going back to the Concord experiment, as I was saying, 32 subjects is a small sample size in the grand scheme of things, but with a 75% success rate, it begs the questions... Why hasn't the use of psychedelics and psychotherapy been used more in terms of rehabilitation? Why haven't wider scale ongoing experiments continued in the decades following this? And why hasn't a national clinically supervised trial been adapted and put into place? Sadly, I can only assume it's because rehabilitation is not the concern. Rehabilitation and lower rates of reoffending is counterproductive. After all, the prison system here in the US has become a booming industry, one powered and protected by the 13th Amendment, which, if you are not familiar with, goes like this. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Again, just the the high emphasis there on except. And it's that single word loophole which has caused what we have now, essentially, in a nutshell. More convictions and less focus on rehabilitation means ultimately more people in jail, which ultimately means more sources of free labour, and ultimately more money poured into the expansion of jails to accommodate said free labour. So I guess crime really does pay. People's wages and end-of-year bonuses. And now... I'm going to take you to church. The Marsh Chapel Experiment, or as it's also known, the Good Friday Experiment, was conducted in the basement of Boston University's Marsh Chapel during the Good Friday service of 1962. 
It was designed by a theology student by the name of Walter Panke and supervised by Timothy Leary and Richard Ramdas Alpert. The aim of the experiment was to investigate whether psilocybin would alter the perception, mood, cognition and behaviour of subjects who were already of a religious nature. Panky wanted to see if psilocybin could produce religious ecstasy, or in other words, if getting off your welt on psychedelics can bring you closer to God. Unlike the Concord experiment, evaluating success or failure with an experiment of this nature is a bit more difficult to say the least, mainly because gauging an actual spiritual experience isn't exactly easy or definitive, but in his best efforts to do so, Panky used a metric devised by the philosopher W.T. Stace. It is essentially a seven-point criteria that determines whether a spiritual experience is authentic, and a couple of the points in there are unity, a sense to a unity within yourself and the larger cosmic slash mystic whole, a sense of the sacred, basically if something or someone becomes so important or integral to you it becomes divine or holy or what have you, a sense of objectivity or reality, so when things might seem incomprehensible and just absolutely batshit insane, but at the same time they seem so damn real it isn't even funny, and then paradoxicality and feelings of joy blessedness, happiness, etc., which, you know, it's pretty self-explanatory. So, the experiment itself goes like this. Twenty students from the Harvard Divinity School were used as volunteer subjects, and the collective twenty were then split into two separate groups. Uh, something that's kind of worth pointing out is that there was, like, some sort of safety protocols. There was, like, a team of researchers that acted as emotional support for them, and there was a buddy system put in place. So, when the two groups were split up, you had somebody to, to look after you, essentially. And the reason being is because this was um, supposed to be a double-blind experiment, where one group received psilocybin, whilst the other group received an effective placebo known as niacin, with nobody knowing exactly who's being given what. So, you know, the buddy system works in the sense that someone's, uh, you know, someone's on the psilocybin, somebody's on the placebo, which apparently niacin or uh, nicotine, Nicotinic acid? I think I got that one right. I don't know. Who cares at this point? Nicotinic acid is apparently an organic compound in a form of vitamin B. It was chosen as the placebo because it produces clear physiological changes, such as your face turning red and feeling tingly. So, you know, some people are kind of, you know, as I say, off their welt. Other people are just kind of relaxed with a warm face, I suppose. I mean, you might not be relaxed. It depends on just, like what happens, like, if your buddy is just kind of getting out of it, getting out of hand, just not handling their high, then you're not going to be relaxed, are you? I guess you're just going to be thinking, oh, God, I have to endure the rest of this now in full control of my sensibilities. Ugh. Unsurprisingly, after about an hour, it became abundantly clear who was high and who wasn't, which really ultimately goes against the whole idea of doing a double-blind experiment in the first place. Uh, an interesting side note here, actually, is that prior to the experiment, Timothy Leary had lost access to psilocybin at Harvard. He'd had his, uh, his access revoked because he was giving away psilocybin pills to Allen Ginsberg and his partner Peter Orlovsky which presumably is why Allen Ginsberg was in such high price of Timothy Leary in the first place. Um, but, you know, Leary being Leary managed to source psilocybin from elsewhere. So after getting it and then loading up the students with the psilocybin 
and the placebo, the experiment and the service began, and upon its conclusion, it is reported that almost all the members of the experimental group reported experiencing profound religious experiences. Houston Smith, a religious scholar who would later then go on to become an author on the topic of comparative religion, described his experience as the most powerful cosmic homecoming I have ever experienced. Far out. However, 25 years after the experiment, psychedelic researcher Rick Doblin conducted a follow-up examination which considered the experiment flawed, partially due to the failed double-blind attempt and a number of vague or imprecise questions which were featured on the Mystical Experience Questionnaire. I filled out a number of questionnaires and forms in my lifetime. Never have I filled out a Mystical Experience one. That is definitely something to put on the list of, of life goals. Have reason to fill out a Mystical Experience Questionnaire. Anyway, there were apparently a number of questions which were really quite vague, which didn't really allude to specific denominations or, or even sort of sects of, of Abrahamic religion. It was just all kind of, yeah, sort of vague and imprecise. It also came to light that the initial reports had failed to mention a number of things, including numerous subjects that had struggled with severe anxiety during the experiment, to the point where one subject had to be injected with a powerful sedative after they escaped the chapel basement, ran outside, convinced that they had been chosen to announce the return of the Messiah. Also, according to Dublin's follow-up, only two people of the psilocybin-receiving subjects reported having a completely positive experience. Now, I just want to say, full disclaimer, I actually haven't read that in the report. I've only sort of skimmed through the report that has been gathered from another source. So, hence why I'm saying apparently, because I don't know that for sure. Either way, there definitely is some conflicting reports here. The initial reports and a lot of stuff that Leary published and put out was very glowing about the experience and the experiment, saying that it really did kind of trigger a lot of you know, religious, mystical, celestial experiences. And then, obviously, Dublin's report, which is kind of dug into the nitty-gritty of it, has pulled a few things out and made it kind of apparent that it wasn't quite the runaway success it was made out to be. As a whole, I actually do find the Good Friday experiment to be a curious case. I mean, the concept is undoubtedly fascinating, and Leary's research into psychedelics as a whole in that period is, is something that really was truly groundbreaking. But to me, what seems like a fatal flaw to the Good Friday experiment, double-blind failure, fudged initial reports, and Leary's unapproved sourcing of psilocybin aside, is the very thing in which it was built around. And that's the fact that subjects have entered the experiment with a pre-existing religious foundation. Now, I know that is, as I say, like the, the centre, that is the core, the hub, the main infrastructure of doing this experiment by Pankey was to, to look at... The, the effects on people with a religious grounding, but the fact that they were already prone and susceptible to things of a more celestial and mystical nature without the drugs really kind of sort of contaminates the experiment for me. Now, you could argue that the psilocybin, depending on how powerful it was, had the potential to blow away any preconceived notions, but I'm thinking, if anything, it's only going to reinforce them. For me, it would be interesting to see what results you would get if you ran this experiment again, but with a group of subjects that were a mix of believers, atheists, and agnostics. 
with people of different faiths too, yes, you could maybe do that, but to make that a more balanced experiment, you definitely have to conduct it in a setting that wasn't so Christian-centric. For me, the more interesting element would be, and maybe it's just because I'm speaking from my perspective of a agnostic, would be to put a mix of people, as I say, believers, agnostics, atheists, in a religious or a spiritual setting like Good Friday service in the basement of a chapel or somewhere else, you know, that does have uh, spiritual or religious connotations that really kind of creates a, a sort of spiritual religious ambience or atmosphere and see what happens with the people that aren't sort of preloaded with a sort of proclivity to be religious or spiritual if just the mix of the psilocybin and the environment were to trigger something that was religious or spiritual or mystical or cosmical in a non-believer. You know, that would be undoubtedly fascinating, especially if you did it with a staunch atheist. That would be curious to see if the psilocybin just kind of cranked open parts of their brain that they've maybe deliberately closed, maybe out of spite or just negative experience, or whatever reason they choose to be so like militantly opposed to religion or spirituality. To me, that would be a fascinating experiment. But at the same time, I do understand that the long-lasting implications and results of that could be pretty tricky, because what if somehow, you know, you manage to cultivate this scenario, this experiment, this psilocybin mixed with the sort of activating principle of being in a religious setting and you did manage to accidentally convert somebody into a religious lifestyle or a religious way of being? What if their experience was so powerful that they did become converted to a more uh, spiritual, religious life? That's that's a danger, I guess, and I suppose that's where a lot of people that might argue against experimenting with psychedelics and um, the brain may kind of stand upon in terms of their argument is that, you know, you could be looking at things that are, are doing wonders in terms of helping people with mental health, with anxiety, depression, all sorts of um, cognitive and neurodiverse issues. You could be doing amazing things, but at the same time, you know it could also just do the complete opposite. Some people can handle this, some people can't, and it's difficult to gauge who can and who can't a lot of the time. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I am very much an advocate for psychedelics and for sort of alternative therapies. Um, but, yeah, I can, I can understand that there is a danger principle to it as well. As a whole, I do find Timothy Leary as a person, a scientist, a philosopher, and as a character infinitely curious, and I do genuinely think the work he and his colleagues were conducting in the 60s was actually pioneering. And what's interesting is there is a real renaissance of sorts currently happening with more research being done into the beneficial effects of psychedelics. It is more at the forefront than it has been before, and it is slowly becoming more socially acceptable. But at the same time, I do also find it kind of baffling and somewhat disappointing to think that we're further behind where we could, and honestly where we should be, in regards to this. That is my opinion. You may have a completely different one, and if you do, or if you are in tune, wherever you lie on the spectrum of this, because it really is a fascinating topic, I would love to hear your thoughts and feelings on it. On this, on Leary, 
on the experiments in particular that we've talked about here. All of it. Get in touch. Hopefully you have enjoyed this and hopefully I've given you enough here to cause an itch of curiosity, a desire to take what you've learned here and dig deeper into a rabbit hole of your own making. And if you do, uh, I would love to know what it is that you discover. You can get in touch with me about whatever it is you discover about this. Whatever you have tickling your brain can do so over on Twitter and Instagram at I am Mal Foster. Or if you look in the show notes, you'll find one single link which will give you access to everything Dimed Out related. I'm talking YouTube, Facebook, the barely ever mentioned merchandise we have available. The whole shebang is right there in one link in the show notes. For next week's episode, we are keeping things within the realm of the mind. We're going to be talking to the wonderful Jessica Michaels, who is a neurodivergent work coach. We're going to be talking about all things neurodiversity, kind of getting a ground floor, ground floor, even now, right at the tail end, I'm having trouble speaking. (laughs) We're getting a ground floor look at what neurodiversity is, how she helps people within the workplace, we're looking at stigmas, stereotypes, all sorts. We're looking at it from a introductory standpoint. So if you are very unaware of neurodiversity and what have you, it's definitely one you want to check out. Even if you are pretty well versed in it, it's definitely still one you want to check out. You do not want to miss it. And the best way to make sure you do not miss it is to simply subscribe. That is, of course, if you haven't done so already. That helps us also, as a side note, as a bonus with the uh, internet search rankings, algorithms, all of that sort of digital magic and gubbins, however the hell it works. I know it does help somehow. Don't ask me how. I just know it does. So if you haven't subscribed, do so already. And if you would like to leave a little bit of extra love, you can, of course, always leave a review. And as I mentioned earlier, link in the bottom in the show notes there will give you access to everything else Dimed Out related. So yeah, check it out. Fill your boots. Fill your boots. And on that note, that about does it for this week's episode. It is a little bit shorter. I was going for something a bit more succinct and stimulating. Uh, I mean, not that the other episodes aren't, but hopefully it has been both of those things. Uh, Yeah, as always, thank you for listening. Look after yourselves. Look after each other. And until next time, keep it dimed 